may be seated. Well, if you are reading this morning from the English Standard Version or the New International Version or even the King James Version, then it pains me to admit that you are at a distinct advantage over those of us who are in the New American Standard. Because you will notice in one of those three versions that the word appear occurs three times in this passage, marking three essential declarations about the Lord Jesus Christ. First, in verse 24, the author says that Christ has entered into the heavenly sanctuary now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then in verse 26, he asserts that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then finally, in verse 28, he declares that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Now, the New American Standard unfortunately translates the second of those occurrences in verse 26, not as has appeared, but as has been manifested, which is not a bad translation, but I think it obscures the point that the author is making in this passage, which is this, our salvation hangs on these three appearances of Christ, for by them... Jesus has saved you. Jesus is saving you. And Jesus will save you. I think that's the author's point. Save us from everlasting destruction, from death and the judgment to come, and saving us for everlasting joy. So this morning what I would like to do is unpack each of these three appearances as they come to us in the text. But before we do, I want to place them in their proper biblical context against their proper biblical backdrop in order that the glory of Jesus may shine forth all the more brilliantly for us this morning because my goal, my hope, my prayer at the end of this passage is that These truths, this truth that we've already sung about so gloriously this morning that is presented to us in this passage would cause us to do what it commands us to do, namely to eagerly await Him, to long for Him. And so I want to set the backdrop for these truths so that they shine forth in all of their brilliance so that it causes us this morning to await Him eagerly, to long for Him, to love His appearing. So last week, I I compared the preaching of the gospel to the holding forth of a diamond, right? Turning it week by week, text by text, in order that the light of the Spirit may shine through its different facets and reveal to you week by week, text by text, a different hue along the spectrum of grace. Alright, so if you'll allow me this morning, I want to press that analogy a little bit further. And I want you to picture a jewelry store filled with with crystal clear display cases all around. Bright lights beaming down upon them. Alright, when you walk into such a store, 
and you ask to see a particular diamond ring or diamond bracelet or diamond necklace, the sales clerk doesn't simply take it out from underneath the counter and and place it on the top of the glass countertop. Why not? Well, it's because the diamond doesn't stand out against the, the clear glass backdrop. In fact, against a clear backdrop, you may not even see it at all. Rather, what the clerk does is he takes out, along with the diamond, he takes out a a black velvet cloth and he spreads it out on top of the counter and he places the diamond ring or the diamond bracelet on top of this black velvet cloth and against this backdrop of black, under the intensity of the lights, the diamond shines brilliantly and it allows you to see it for all of its glory. So what I need to do this morning is I need to lay out the black velvet cloth for us. I need to set the backdrop against which the diamond of the gospel under the intense light of the Holy Spirit that we've prayed for this morning may shine out with all of its glory and all of its brilliance in order that we may see the refulgent splendor of the glory of Christ that it is the privilege of the children of God to behold. Because it's seeing glory that causes our hearts to long for Him and to love His appearing. So the black backdrop against which the diamond of the gospel is seen in this passage is that of death and judgment. And you see it here in verse 27 of chapter 9. The author says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment. It's appointed for you to die once. And after your death comes judgment. Now, admittedly, that's not the author's main point in this passage to focus on death and judgment. It's not even the main point of the sentence. In fact, he's using it as a means of comparing it to the once-for-all death of Christ to emphasize and prove by comparison the all-sufficiency, the once-for-all nature of Christ's atoning death. Nevertheless, though, the affirmation of verse 27 stands true. You will die, and you will be judged. That's why we so desperately need the saving work of Christ declared in this passage. The reality of death and judgment is the black backdrop against which the gospel diamond shines forth. So there are three truths that I want to bring out of verse 27. Truths that I pray that every one of us will reckon with this morning. First, death and judgment is a universal reality. It's a universal reality. Everyone dies. No one escapes. Paul wrote in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All die because all have sinned. More personally, we die because we've all sinned. You cannot You will not escape death. No amount of precaution, 
No, no amount of exercise or healthy eating or medical treatment can ward off the ever-encroaching enemy of death. Death will come for you eventually and it will overtake you and it will conquer you. But death is not the end. After death comes judgment. Paul said later in Romans, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each one of us, every one of us, will give an account of himself to God. There is coming a day when all of our hiding from God, all of our proud self-autonomy, our self-rule, our I'm going to do it my own way and go my own way and be my own boss. It's going to come to an end. And we will stand helpless and exposed before the judgment seat of a holy and righteous God. So number one, it's universal. All die. All are judged. None escape. Secondly, it's an imminent reality. It is appointed for men to die. The author speaks of death like an appointment, like a, like a date on the divine calendar. And it is. We have an appointment with death. Who set this appointment? God did. The day of our death was decreed from all eternity by the sovereign Lord who holds the keys of life and death. Psalm 136.16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Before I lived, before the foundations of the world, all of my days, be they long or be they short, were ordained for me and they were for you as well. You have an appointment with death. Now, That death and judgment are imminent realities does not mean that you're going to die tomorrow. It means that you might. You don't know. God has decreed the day of your death. It may be tomorrow. It may be 50 years from now. You don't know. But you know this on the authority of Hebrews 9.27 that when that day arrives, then comes judgment in other words there there are no second chances there's no going back and contrary to popular publishing you don't go and come back it's appointed for men to die once that makes death imminent that means this morning for every one of you who are here death and judgment must be reckoned with It must be prepared for. And if death and judgment are imminent, it must be prepared for when? Today, says the author of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's a universal reality. It's an imminent reality. Third, it is a terrifying reality. Let your eyes wander over to the next page, to Hebrews chapter 10. Twice... In Hebrews chapter 10, the author describes the judgment of the Lord as terrifying. Verse 27, he speaks of a terrifying expectation of judgment 
and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. You see that on your page? Listen to me. You don't want to die an enemy of God. You do not want to face His judgment as His adversary. Which is precisely what you are this morning if you are not in Christ. You are God's enemy. You are God's adversary. And the fate that awaits you, that of death and judgment, is terrifying. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let's not just breeze on past Hebrews 9.27 this morning. Let's dwell a little bit on the words that are used to describe judgment, vengeance, terror, fury, the fire that consumes the enemies of God, eternal, unrelenting, unremitting, unquenchable wrath. That's what awaits the adversaries of God on the day of their death. Now, most people sort of sleepwalk their way through life, blind and deaf and numb to the reality that is spoken of in Hebrews 9.27. But I want you to know that ignorance is not bliss in this regard. Ignorance is deadly. God has given us a word this morning. It is not by accident that you are here in this sanctuary in the midst of God's people under the preaching of this text because God has given you a word this morning to awaken us out of our stupor and to awaken us to the ferocious reality that sits on the other side of a, of a heart that stops beating. And it does it for a purpose. The purpose of Hebrews 9.27, the purpose of of Hebrews 10.27 and and 10.31, it is not to cause you to quake in terror and leave you there. It is caused or it is purposed in order that you would awaken to the reality, there is an enemy at my gates and I need to be rescued. In order that you would cry out for salvation. God's purpose is, in texts like these, it's not merely to awaken us to the fact that there is an enemy at the gates so that we can be witness to our own destruction. God's purpose is to rescue us from that enemy of death and judgment of sin and of wrath. So we need rescue. You need rescue. Because it's appointed man wants to die and then comes judgment. That's the backdrop. Now, rescue from death and judgment is precisely what Jesus has appeared 
is now appearing and will appear to do for you. And I hope, I hope that against that backdrop, you are able to love the truth that we're getting ready to unpack. That it would cause you to long for his appearing. So let's walk walk our way through. The author begins in the present where Christ is now appearing in the presence of God for us. Look up at verse 23. He says, therefore, okay, therefore, because all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That's verse 22. That's the reference to therefore. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. All right, if you've been with us from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 7, you're familiar by now with the concept that the earthly tabernacle was a copy or a replica of the heavenly tabernacle, and that the old covenant priesthood was a type and shadow of the new covenant priesthood of Christ, right? We don't need to retread that ground. We've covered that extensively already. So verses 23 and 24 are a summation of what has already been said. All things are cleansed and purified by the blood of a sacrifice. That's verse 22. Therefore, it was necessary that the copied tabernacle be cleansed with copied blood upon a copied altar. But, verse 23 and 24, it was necessary that the true and heavenly tabernacle be cleansed by the blood of the true and heavenly Lamb of God. So what we see in verses 23 and 24 is just a a, a repeat of the theme of the book of Hebrews, right? Better. Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant who ministers in the better tabernacle, having offered the better sacrifice to obtain the better promises for those he represents. But I want to focus in on the last phrase of verse 24. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself. What is he doing? He is appearing in the presence of God for us, representing us right now before the throne of grace. Question, what is he doing there? How does he represent us? What does this appearing now in the presence of God for us entail? And how does what he's doing now rescue us from death and the judgment to come? That's the question. There are two works, saving works, that Jesus is performing right now in heaven for you. Two of them. Number one, verses 23 and 24 say that he cleanses the heavenly sanctuary. He ascended to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary, which raises a question. Why would the heavenly sanctuary need cleansing? In what sense does the holy temple where the holy God sits enthroned upon his holy throne need to be purified? Answer, it doesn't. It's holy. It doesn't need to be purified. We need to be purified. 
Think about the Old Covenant sanctuary. When the Old Covenant sanctuary was cleansed by blood, it was not the actual articles of the sanctuary that were defiled and inherently evil. There's nothing inherently wrong with gold and silver and bronze and acacia wood and fine linen and skins. Those are just things, inanimate objects. They're not sinful. They're not wicked. They're not evil in and of themselves. But the people of Israel defiled it by their iniquity. And if God was to dwell in the midst of his people, in the midst of Israel, which was the whole purpose of the earthly tabernacle, then that tabernacle needed to be sanctified from the defiling influence that they had brought into it. It needed to be sanctified by blood. The blood assured, or ensured rather, that the sinful priests who represented the people could come before the holy God without defiling his sanctuary. Well, in the New Covenant, it's not just the priests. All of God's people are invited to draw near to the throne of grace. So how am I not going to defile God's holy sanctuary? How are you not going to defile God's holy sanctuary? Yes, it's one thing to be invited to the throne of grace. But I'm unclean. I I am... I am defiled. I am filthy. My heart is a cesspool, a a seemingly unending spring from which streams all manner of iniquity. And if I were to take one step into God's holy temple, the whole thing would be defiled and I would be consumed by His righteous anger. But for Christ. For Christ now appears in the presence of God to keep that from happening. Christ now appears in the presence of God so that I, when I set foot into the holy temple, will not defile the temple, but rather my defiling and my filthiness will be cleansed and I will be pure. So 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin, from all defilement, from all filth. We have an advocate before the Father who is Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who pleads for us, who answers to our sin with His atoning grace. So Jesus appears now in the presence of God for us, So that we can do what Hebrews 4.16 invites us to do. To come before the throne of grace with confidence to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, now appearing in the presence of God for us, means that when I come before God, I will not be consumed by His wrath. I will be welcomed by His grace. And so will you. You can go to Him now in prayer, and upon the day of your death, you can step into His presence because Christ is there making you clean and keeping your defilement from entering the sanctuary. So do not fear fear to approach the throne. That's the message. Don't don't fear that you're going to be rejected. That you'll defile God's Presence with the filth of sin. Jesus Christ, your high priest, is there. 
His death has atoned for your sin perfectly and finally and eternally. And his blood cleanses you and purifies and sanctifies you. And now you may come safely before your God. So he cleanses you so that you may enter the tabernacle. Secondly, he's interceding for us before the Father. He prays for you. The intercession of Christ is not in view here in Hebrews 9, but it was in the same context at the end of Hebrews 7. You remember what he said? He said, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, seeing that he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you, and that is how he is able to save you to the uttermost. Jesus is praying your salvation to completion right now, this morning. He is keeping you in faith this morning. He is praying that you would be sanctified in the truth, John 17, 17. He's praying that you would be preserved in the name of God, John 17, 11. He is praying that you would be protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed, 1 John 1, 5. He's praying for you, and that's how you know it's true what Paul says of you in Romans chapter 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. That's why no charge against you will stand. No condemnation can come to you. Your advocate stands at the right hand of the Father, mediating and interceding on your behalf. He prays for you. And his prayers are effectual. His prayers are keeping you in the faith. So Jesus appears for you now. He is saving you by his high priestly ministry before the throne of God. But there is one thing that Jesus does not do right now. The author is explicit and clear and forceful. He does not die over and over again for you. Verse 25 says, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I think he adds this lest we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is a priest in the same way that the old covenant priests were priests. That his ministry is equivalent in every way to their ministry. He says, no, 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 there is one massive distinction between the two that must not be overlooked. He says, with regard to the old covenant priests, year by year on the day of atonement, the high priest would slaughter the bull and the goat and he would, he would take their blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the mercy seat and make atonement for sin. Year by year, blood was shed. Year by year, blood was sprinkled. Year by year, they would have to do it all over again. And the repeated nature of these sacrifices proved their insufficiency to take away sin. Therefore, their insufficiency to save them from death and judgment. He says, not so with Jesus, who has appeared once at the end of the ages to offer the all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. Once at the end of the ages. 
What he has in mind here was the first coming of Jesus when he appeared. Okay? He is appearing before the throne of God for us. He appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That first coming of Jesus, particularly the climactic moment of his first coming when our great high priest of the new covenant walked out into the courtyard of this world and laid himself down upon the altar of the cross and there in the sight of the whole congregation of Israel poured out his blood unto death for the sins of his people. So he's talking about the cross in verse 26. So here's the question. How do I know that his death is all sufficient when all of the previous deaths were insufficient? What's the difference? How do I know that I can look back on the all-sufficient death of Jesus and be assured that no charge against me will stand and that death and judgment for me will not be terror? And a fury that, con- that consumes, or the fury of a fire that consumes his adversaries. How do I know? What is it about his death that assures me that I'm saved? Four things he points out. Number one, Christ died once. Once. You heard that word repeated. You're going to hear it a bunch more in chapter 10. Once. If his death were not all sufficient, it would be repeated. In fact, he says he would have had to have suffered in every generation from the beginning of the world. He would have had to have died and suffered in Adam's generation and in Abel's generation and Abraham's generation and Moses and David and Isaiah and so on and so forth. If his death were not all sufficient, it would have to be repeated. But an all sufficient death occurs once for all time, for all the sins of all his people. Once. Number two, when Christ appeared, he did not offer the blood of animals. He didn't offer worthless blood upon a copied altar. He offered his own precious blood upon the true altar. Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? Why? Why is that impossible? because bulls and goats are not a fitting substitute for men because they're not as valuable as man. Only only a sinless man can be a fitting substitute for a sinful man. Only a sinless man could take my place, die my death, and take away my judgment, absorb God's wrath in my place. One for one, value for value, man for man. But how valuable is the God-man? Infinitely valuable. So how many men can the God-man stand in the place for? Answer, as many as he wants. The infinite value of his person makes his atoning death infinitely valuable and therefore all sufficient third the author says that christ's death marked the consummation of the ages the end of the ages all of human history is a mind-blowing thought all of human history led up to the climax of the cross the cross was the beginning of the end of the age his resurrection marked the dawn of the beginning the dawn of the new age to come, 
And the time in between Christ's first and second coming is like an overlap in which this present evil age is passing away and the new age is dawning. And in between these two comings is a time of great ingathering of all of the elect from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then at Christ's second coming, the sons of this age will be judged and the sons of the age to come will be saved for everlasting life and joy. But everything centers upon this one climactic event that marks the end of the age and the dawn of the new. And that event is the all-sufficient death of the Son of God. Number four, the death of Christ accomplished its purpose. He says it put away sin. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, look at me. Your sins are gone. They are are put away, taken away, removed from you. As far as the east is from the west, remembered no more. It, It is not as if God swept them under the rug. But rather that in this one climactic event at the end of the ages, God brought all of them out into the light and He dealt with them once and for all. Your sins are not hidden in some heavenly closet somewhere awaiting you to open the door and they're all going to come falling out on top of your head. They're gone. They're they're atoned for. They're taken away forever. All of God's wrath against all of your sin was poured out upon Jesus at the cross. And He has no more wrath left for you. Can can you taste the the joy of that truth? The, The comfort and the freedom and the assurance in light of what we just read in Hebrews 9, 27 that it's appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment? Why does the judgment hold no terror for those of us who are in Christ? He's already been judged in my place. Why am I not afraid that I'm going to be condemned on that day? He was already condemned in my place. All of it. What does this mean? This means that you were saved the moment Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. The moment his lifeless head dropped to his chest, the moment the the veil of the temple ripped in two and the rocks were split, you were saved. You just didn't know it yet. He appeared to save you. He is appearing to save you. And He will appear for your salvation. Now some of you here, you recognize attention. You feel it. Here's the way I might describe it. If Christ put away my sin 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem... Why am I still sinning? If if Jesus suffered my penalty and died my death, why do I still suffer and why am I still going to die? If Jesus died to bring me to God, then why is my fellowship with Him still from afar? There seems to be a disconnect between what the Bible says that Christ accomplished at His first appearing through His death on the cross and what I'm actually experiencing in my life. Do you recognize that disconnect? 
You probably feel it every time you read the New Testament. Sin and misery still reign. Death death still overtakes every one of us. Why? The answer is that the coming of the Messiah, though foreseen by the prophets as one event, really comes in two phases. At his first appearing, Christ came to die and rise again. All right? By his death and resurrection, Jesus overthrew Satan and conquered sin and death and hell. At his first appearing, Jesus accomplished our salvation once and for all. He purchased our redemption. He paid full price. Nothing is lacking. No debt remains outstanding or unpaid. That was his first appearing. He accomplished our salvation. Then he ascended into heaven and he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavenly tabernacle and from his position of power and glory, the sovereign Christ applies what was accomplished to us by his word and spirit. Okay? So at his first appearing, he accomplished our salvation. Now he is appearing to apply what was accomplished to us by the word and the spirit. And then at his second appearing, just to fit with the theme, he will actualize, make real, manifest, consummate, bring forth what was accomplished at his first appearing, what is being applied now by his present appearing. It will be seen for all that it is. It will be actualized in his final appearing, his second coming. That's the author's point in verses 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for, the sal- for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. He's coming back. He's going to appear a second time, but it's going to be different this time than it was the first time. Then... He came in humility. Now he's coming in glory. Then he came to deal with sin, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Then he's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming to bring his saved people home to himself and to rescue them from the judgment and wrath that he's about to unleash upon the world. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn him and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He is coming in judgment. That's why everything's shaking. And he's coming for salvation of his people. That's why he sends out his angels. Go get them. Gather. He's coming to gather, to rescue, to save his people from the judgment that he will unleash upon the earth. And then when he has done so, when he has saved his people, when he has judged the wicked, he'll give the command. And heaven and earth will pass away. And all of the created order will undergo a regeneration, a transformation. And he will call forth a new heaven and a new earth that is beautiful and pristine and unsullied and perfect. 
And behold, the tabernacle of God will be among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and he shall be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or sickness or pain or death. First things have passed away and he who sits on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. When Christ appears the second time, you will be finally, eternally, gloriously saved. He appeared to save you from your sins. To save you and rescue you from death and judgment. He is appearing to save you from your sins. To cleanse you that you may come before God pure and holy and sanctified. And He is appearing then. He will appear to save you from the judgment that He's going to pour out upon all the earth. He appeared, is appearing, and will appear. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. But one last point bears mentioning. And that is who will be saved. Verse 27 is universal. It's appointed men to die once and then comes the judgment. For whom? For everyone. Verse 28 is particular. Only some will be saved at the second appearing of Christ. And they are identified by one defining characteristic in this verse. They are eagerly awaiting his return. Now just like last week in Hebrews 9.15, when the author identified the heirs as those who have been called, and that kind of startled me a bit because it wasn't what I expected. I expected him to say, those who believe receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's not what he said. He said, those who have been called and we dealt with that a little bit and said the author is, is doing that for a reason. He wants to emphasize the sovereign electing grace of God in determining who his heirs are so that all glory and, and, and honor will be given to him and not to us. He's doing the same thing here. The Bible often says things that we don't expect. It, it catches us off guard at times. And when it does, we need to ask, why? Why does he say it in, in this way? Why does the inspired author of this text say he's going to save those who eagerly await him and not, what I expect him to say, having read the New Testament, he's going to save those who believe in him. That's what I think is coming, and then he throws me a curve. The answer, I think, is that there is a type of faith that is common in churches today and in the first century world as well and in all ages There is a kind of faith that believes the facts about Jesus. They believe everything I've just preached. But they believe it with a sort of dispassionate, distant recognition that doesn't see it as compelling or glorious. They don't love it. Those with such faith view the salvation which Christ has accomplished Primarily in terms of an escape from hell. It's like I played Monopoly with Abby yesterday and I, I, I got the get out of jail free card a couple of times. It's kind of like that. It's like the get out of hell free card. And listen, I was glad when I drew that out of the community chest. And they're glad to have their get out of hell free card. But they love the world, and they love the things of the world, and they love their life in this world, and they're just not particularly eager for Jesus to come back and ruin it all. Now, they know that they can't live forever. 
and they know intuitively that it's appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment. But they want to wring every last drop of pleasure out of this world while they still can. So Jesus, come back, just not today. They got things to do. Beloved, that is not saving faith. It is fire insurance. And those who have it will find to their horror on the last day that their policy was fraudulent all along. That's why he specifies those who eagerly await him. He's specifying a type of faith that saves. See, the kind of faith that saves is a faith that is eager for Jesus to come because those with such faith love him. They want to be with him. They found their identity in him more than their identity in the things of the world. They want to see him come and put an end to all of the suffering and misery that their eyes have been opened to. They want to see him come and set all things right. They want to see him come and put an end to all of these all, all rape and, and beheadings and molestations and all of the wickedness that infects this world. They want him to come and put an end to all of it. They want him to come. And they want to be with him. They, they want to dwell with him in the splendor of holiness. In a world where all is as it should be. Where Jesus reigns. Their utmost desire and joy is in Christ and not in this world. And so they long for him like a bride for her bridegroom. And their heart beats towards the wedding day. So I would tell you this morning. If by his good and merciful and abundant grace... He has awakened you this morning to the reality of death and judgment in a way that you've never experienced before. And and frankly, you're a little afraid. Number one, you should be. But number two, there's a way out. There's a rescue. And if you would lay hold of this rescue from the death and judgment to come, then you need to trust in Jesus with a faith that wants him to return. A faith that loves his appearing. You need to trust in him as your savior. And seek him as your delight. And embrace him as your treasure. And follow him as your king and your Lord. And long for his return. And for those of you who do. Eagerly await him. Death has no sting and the judgment holds no terror for you. To you, death is merely the gateway to life and a better life than what you've got now. It's the doorway to the fulfillment of your soul's longing. That gnawing emptiness that you feel because what you long for is on the other side of death. To you, death is gain which are not the ramblings of a crazy man. It's the heart cry of a saved man. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are the words of a man who's not afraid to die. Who doesn't sit in terror of the coming judgment. The words of a man who's free. 
I can live, I can die, it's up to Christ. Either way, I'm good. But one's better. To live is Christ. It means fruitful ministry to me, Paul said in Philippians 1. But to die is much better. Better by far, he says. It's gain. Free. And that's what you are if you're in Christ. If you, if you eagerly await his return, you are free from the slavery to the fear of death. You're free from the terror of the judgment and of the fire that consumes the adversaries of God. There is great confidence and abundant joy to be had in this passage, and I want to taste it this morning. And I want you to taste it this morning. So my prayer is that God would grant us, the children of God, to be free and fearless in the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus has appeared, is appearing, and will appear to save us from death and judgment. Do you long for Him? If not, I would invite you to pray and confess that. Ask Him to grant you a faith that longs for His return. Ask Him to open your heart to and to fill it with a love that wants to be with Him above all else. And I think He'll grant it. Our God delights to save. Doesn't He? Well, what else does this passage mean? Think, look, look at all of the effort that He went to to save wretches like us. He sent His Son not once but Twice. His Son appearing now in the presence of God for us. God's calling you this morning, and today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Rather, turn to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, I want to I love Your appearing more and more. Jesus, I... I, I I want the pool of this world upon me to be broken and my desire for you to be strengthened. And I want that for every one of our people here. So I ask you now to grant that by your grace. And to those here who may have been awakened this morning to the reality of death and judgment, I pray that you would lead them to call out to you. Let me say just a moment. If that is you, that's what you need to do. You need to call upon his name. Right now in prayer, you need to ask him to forgive you of your sin and to save you from death and the judgment to come. You need to confess him as Lord and follow him as king and give yourself to him wholeheartedly. And you can do that now. And I urge you to do that. To the rest of you, let's pray and ask God to break the bondage and the chains that this world holds upon us and to cause us to long for His appearing. And I believe that He'll do it as we we declare, declare together in song that He alone can rescue, He alone can save, He alone can raise us from the grave. All of our hope is in Him. 
Father, do your work in our midst this morning. I ask in Jesus' name.